Hey, Alejandro here. I recorded the following conversation in the beginning of August of 2021. I had the opportunity to go uh, visit the unfinished basement workshop of Red Star Tactical, where I talked to two members of the organization about their experiences trying to run a co-op within the tactical gear industry. I will try to minimize the background noise and level the voices to the best of my ability, but you will probably still hear various sounds coming in from the world because, uh, well, we live in a society. I would like to note that they gave me a pretty sweet pair of OD Green Hard Knuckle Tactical Gloves, so I believe that makes them financial backers of the podcast. My name is Alejandro Cienfuegos, and I am the creator of the Hammer and Pistol Project and the host of this podcast. I am going to be joined by a couple of fine folks today. Uh, I will go ahead and let them introduce themselves. Uh, if you want to go ahead. Hey, I'm Max with Red Star Defense. I'm Jay, also with Red Star Defense. So the thing, man. <laughs> the goal of today's uh, today's episode is to talk with Max and Jay from the aforementioned Red Star Defense and uh, take a look at uh, you know where they come from and, and what they're doing with their project. So let's uh, let's get right to it. So my first question for you both is. Um, what exactly does Red Star Defense do? Um, well, as of this moment, uh, we manufacture and distribute or purchase and redistribute uh, body armor and tactical accessories and uh, body armor accessories to make them available at a price that working class people can actually afford and make use of. Okay. And... Uh... I guess, why do you have that focus on working class people? What would set working class people apart from anyone else on the market? Oh, well, the overwhelming majority of uh, tactical gear or anything even remotely adjacent to guns or even just sporting goods is just outrageously price gouged and pushed out of uh, financially financial feasibility for the overwhelming majority of the working class who uh, make up the majority of the people in this country and uh, most of the people who have a moral right to the wealth of this country. So, Okay. Jay, is there anything you you want to add on to that? No, I think that pretty much about covers it. Okay. Um, <laughs> let's dance around saying means of production. Yeah. <laughs> let's see yeah. how long we can do it. The, the yeah. means of production, yes. Um, so what I'm really interested about with Red Star Defense, so you guys are organized as a, uh, I guess, co-op might be a word yeah. to describe it. Is that correct? Um, I mean, it would be ambitious to say syndicate because there's only, <laughs> what, the five of us. Yeah. Okay. Um, but, uh, yeah, so it, it's organized as a co-op. We all share ownership. Um, we've talked about bylaws. Uh, we haven't set a lot of that stuff in stone yet because it hasn't become administratively necessary, if that makes sense. Because, if, I mean, it's just, it's just the five of us. We all know each other. Uh, some of us have known each other for decades. And it's not... Um, it, the spoken agreements between uh, comrades with a long history 
are sufficient for now, and we don't really need to burden ourselves with the administrative baggage of uh, written agreements. Um, as we grow, that is going to become necessary. It may even be something coming up in our immediate future. We've got a couple of people who we've been talking about onboarding who are distant enough from our immediate social circles that that might be the sort of thing we want to start talking about and doing. Um, but yeah, for, for all practical purposes, we're already running it as a co-op. Everybody chips in. Um, we haven't allowed anyone to participate who as uh, any sort of silent partner. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're not putting your hands on the tools, then you're not putting your money into the project either. That's fine. Thank you. You can stay home. Okay. So everyone's kind of taking on uh, a share of the risk in, in more or less equal uh, shares. More or less. I, from from a fiscal standpoint, I think Jay and I have put in the most money, but everybody's put in a lot of hours. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Um, so where would you both situate yourselves, politically speaking, and in relation to the means of production? And I, I'm curious about this from when you started Red Star Defense, mm-hmm. however long ago that was. Maybe you could talk about kind of the history as well. About um, 18 months? Yeah, I mean, if you want to go, I mean, I don't know how far you want to go back with well, yeah. other things, but yeah. Um, so Red Star Defense grew out of an earlier project, Evolutionary Arms and Armor, which was also organized as a co-op. Um, that project, um, all the words that come to mind have connotations of like catastrophe that are not appropriate. It was dissolved because the people involved were no longer interested in participating in the project. Um, it was, it just, it outgrew its usefulness. Um, the technology we were working around using steel as a primary material for body armor was becoming economically infeasible and the practical limitations were being reached. I wanted to keep going and work on something, doing something more, finding a new way to produce body armor that we could continue this project in a meaningful way to keep hitting that mission goal of putting armor on people who couldn't otherwise afford it. Um, and it just wasn't, we, we couldn't reach an agreement. So, um, and, uh, this fine fellow and I got to chatting about it and, um, we relaunched the project under a new name and a couple of those comrades from the earlier project have been off and on participants, mm-hmm. uh, especially in the earlier research and development phases. Um, but yeah, so this, this project has its roots in an earlier project that goes back about 10 years, but this has sure. been about 18 months. Okay, cool. And, and where would you say that um, maybe we look at the beginning of uh, evolutionary arms and armor? Where were you? situated politically and, and, you know, what was your experience in the world and in, in life that led you to start that project and transition to this? Mm. Well, um, my politics, my politics have not changed much since then. Um, I'm, uh, pretty much just your, your garden variety Marxist. I have some deep seated and, uh, close to my heart syndicalist, syndicalist sympathies. Um, uh, but, you know, um, and I will definitely step up to pick a fight with anyone who wants to try to dunk on anarchists. Um, but I, I've always been fairly comfortable in uh, a more mainstream milieu, <laughs> mainstream Marxist. <laughs> I know, right? Uh, more of a more of a mainstream Marxist milieu. Um, 
in North America because it's not, uh, no particular branding has felt particularly appealing to me. Um, I've got, I've got some pretty strong stances on some pretty core questions that would normally put me in one camp or another, but a few of those positions are contradictory, uh, according to people outside of my own head. So, um, we're just going to go with Marxist for now. Okay. But if, but if anything specific comes up in our conversation, like I'm not afraid to own any of my positions. There just isn't a convenient label. Okay. And Jay, how about, how about you? Yeah, for me, it was, um, I mean, around the time, like pre red star stuff, even going back sort of to how I got to this point of like, uh, I was pretty much raised like a full on liberal, um, and was pretty much down with that for a very long time. Uh, and then probably about like 2015 or so started like really thinking like, Hey, we should probably do something about this, like whole, like possible fascism thing. And so at that point, my, my answer was to like go and join a bunch of fucking Facebook groups, um, which was, uh, not particularly worthwhile or productive. So then once I got out of that phase, that was around the time, um, that we met and ended up sort of starting to talk about some of the red star ideas. Um, and at that point I was starting to do more stuff outside of Facebook and sort of with a more focus on actually like materially working and improving on things. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then, so by the time I found out about, you know, this whole project, I was like, yeah, that sounds perfect. That's exactly what I want to do. Um, cause most of my background is with like economics and accounting administrative stuff. Um, and so there's not really like a lot of, um, uh, like work in the streets that you can do with some of those skills. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, this is perfect. This is like exactly the kind of thing that I can do. Um, okay. that, that I can put value into. Sure. Yeah. Okay. And, um, so Max, back when you got started, uh, I guess, what was your, your position within, uh, the class structure? Oh, uh, your boy here has been working class since he fell out of his mom. Um, uh, right now I wouldn't even say that we own any meaningful amount of means of production. Um, uh, here in this room below the microphone, there's about $60 worth of clamps. <laughs> um, no, that's, you know, so we've, we've, Bourgeois pig. Yeah, <laughs> right. So we've, we've begun the process of accumulating, some means of production. And this, I guess, does actually lead into, um, those, those syndicalist sympathies of mine. Um, I think that, uh, any effective revolutionary project, uh, comes with one hell of a price tag. And in the past people have that quite a few different revolutionary movements have had different answers to how to meet those needs. Um, God bless everyone who ever robbed a train for the revolution. Uh, but that's not really feasible in the modern age. Um, and I don't see any reason why we have to wait until the big R to start accumulating the means of production as long as we are careful about how we steward them and uh, keep in mind why we have them and what the purpose is. Um, so we are, I mean, the, the hope is to accumulate some usable portion of means of production that we can actually turn to use producing wealth for the class that can be used in a broader project. Okay. 
Jay, how about you? Where did you find yourself uh, before getting into these uh, these types of projects? I know you said you were yeah. a little more liberally oriented, and it sounds like with your economics and accounting background, that might maybe, uh, you know, I, if I'm reading that correctly, maybe you have some kind of different experiences uh, within the class structure. Yeah, somewhat. I mean, um, definitely very, yeah, grew up like working class household. Um, and yeah, ended up going to college and everything, but, um, I ended up like working a drugstore job for like 10 years to pay for it through the whole thing going part-time and everything. So it was definitely, that was one of the main things that really like, uh, did push me towards that of just like, holy fuck, I'm working this like minimum wage job. Okay. Um, and like, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It all sure. kind of goes okay. obviously from there. Did you maybe um, have dis uh, different aspirations when you started that, uh, educational trajectory and yeah. you know, maybe some, some ideas about what career you would end up in? Yeah, definitely. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. There was, um, it was the first econ class I took. I knew that I wanted to do something around like economics and finance and everything. Um, by the end of my program, uh, that is honestly what kind of like really hammered it home for me was taking these econ classes and realizing like, wait, this is, this is messed up. Like, this is not good. <laughs> They're teaching this as though it's good, but it's like, y'all see, this isn't good. Right. Like, <laughs> like looking around at everybody in the class, like, uh, did this guy just like say sweatshops are like good for the global economy? Like what? <laughs> um, but invisible hand. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You end up coming back to like, yeah. Um, and other dogmatic, which is concepts. crazy because Adam Smith wrote stuff that people would like consider like Fox news would consider like <laughs> hardcore socialist, like unthinkable shit now. Yeah. Well, um, to be fair though, Fox news has no true idea of what a socialist is. It's just uh, yeah, a uh, yeah, yeah. boogeyman. Yeah. Yeah. Socialist is a convenient boogeyman who wants to take your guns and yeah. 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 So, so Jay, it sounds like your educational background, economics, accounting, Max, what is your, uh, your background? Um, and also maybe you could also both talk about, uh, your technical expertise coming into these projects, especially since, you know, there's a manufacturing component. I'm really interested mm -hmm. to hear about that. Um, so in, in a deeper background sense, I mean, um, uh, I gave a university a comical amount of money to teach me how to do math. Um, and, uh, I'll probably be paying back that money for the rest of my life. But, um, yeah, um, I've got a, I've got a degree in advanced mathematics and, um, a background in engineering. Um, and, uh, I've got about eight years now in the trades, uh, assorted trades, mostly electrical, but, um, I've done plumbing and framing and drywall hanging and a whole bunch of other shit. Um, I, uh, I mean, that's, that's where the hands-on portion comes from, but, um, I've always been fascinated by material sciences. And even before I got into college, um, the, the engineering aspect of material sciences and, uh, design has always been fascinating and, um, a major point of interest for me. And, uh, that's, that's a lot of what I'm bringing to the table with Red Star. Um, the, the design and the research and development program is, is my baby. That's, that is a lot of what I bring to the table. I literally could not do it without other people to help, but, um, but I, but I, I do, I am, I am not too humble 
to pat myself on the back for holding up the research and development arm of this project. Um, and that's, that's what I try to, I just try to make myself useful around is that I've got the, I've got the knowledge and the skills for, so. Okay. Jay, did you bring any sort of, uh, technical expertise aside from your accounting, which it sounds like you, you are using for this project? Yeah. Yeah. Um, not so much really. I just really like learning new stuff. And, you know, when I, when we started talking about this, even just, you know, in passing, um, it was really interesting. And I was like, wow, that's a whole thing that I don't really know anything about. And I would love to find out more about that. And you will find out if you haven't found out already that, um, if you get him talking about, you know, ballistic tile and stuff, like it's very easy to get it to continue to come, <laughs> um, which I love. I love hearing that about. is the like, most polite way that has ever said it's hard to shut me up. No, that's not what I mean at all. I mean, not at all. Um, yeah, so I really didn't have any, um, you know, any of, like, this kind of technical skill going into it. Um, I had, you know, firearms knowledge, and that was about the closest thing um, that I could get to with it. Yeah. Okay. Well, I cannot bear to see you be humble, so I think uh, it, it needs to be stated on the record that this project would not be happening if Jay was not holding up the paperwork end basically by himself. Okay. Also, well, thank I, you. <laughs> um, you know, my, my thought, as you tell me about that, I, I actually think it's pretty cool that you have room within this project to take in the person that may not have the technical knowledge or expertise, you know, the, the specific domains mm. and, um, you know, utilize their, what, what they can bring, uh, in this instance, that accounting experience and, and general knowledge about firearms. And then, uh, maybe creating an environment where you facilitate learning and, and growth. Um, I think that's pretty cool. I know that my own work within the industry, there is a, there's certainly a culture of uh, continuous learning and continuous growth, but um, there, there also seems to be this like idea that you kind of get pigeonholed or you have to, you have to come in with certain types of technical experience. Otherwise you are not worthy. So, um, just, you know, the outsider looking in, I, I do think that's a pretty cool, uh, dynamic that you, you guys seem to have here. Um, I wish more organizations would take on that model. You know, I, I've worked, uh, on the more corporate side where that's, that's what they say. They, they claim that they're all about teaching people and then suddenly you're not delivering or you're not, you're not hitting whatever benchmarks, criteria, metrics, you know, what have you mm. within the, within your specific domain and suddenly you are no longer a uh, productive asset to that entity and goodbye. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah. Um, that, that is, I mean, I'd never really thought about it that way before actually, but now that you've brought it up, that is the way that I've sort of been thinking about this is that like, I think that everyone has something to bring to the table. We might just not know what it is yet. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's also the fact that like anybody can learn to do this stuff. Um, I, one of the things about working in the trades that has just absolutely driven me bonkers is this treating things as arcane or esoteric that simply are not. That is not how the real world works. Anybody can be an electrician. Uh, 
and anybody can be a mathematician. Um, it might take some people more effort. Some people might take to it more naturally, but I don't believe in concrete personal barriers. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that they are largely a fiction invented as part of the broader hegemony of capitalist control. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, given sufficient time and support, I don't think that there is anything that is beyond anyone. Um, and, uh, in order for this project and this organization to remain resilient, cross training and mutual support and the ability to fill in for people and the ability to replace people if necessary is going to be uh, a necessary keystone of any long-term survivability. Uh, and those two things coming together, uh, everyone learns how to do everything. You mm -hmm. don't have to be good at everything, sure. but you should know how to do it. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, I, I know I see that, you know, you, you were mentioning the trades. I, I too work in the building trades and, um, you know, my, my field within the building trades, that's where I'm expected to kind of have the, the most expertise, but there is also an expectation that I also know how to work with wood to, or, you know, work with building things and be a mechanic in addition to, you know, the knowledge that I need to really hone in on and be an expert on and, and, you know, in order to call myself competent, qualified. Um, I, I think with, within capitalism, the reason that we, we never get these opportunities to grow beyond that, I don't know, kind of set domain, that pigeonhole, mm -hmm. if you will, it's because it's, it's all about having productive units and, you know, we are not people, we are numbers on a sheet mm -hmm. of paper and we have a set task to accomplish. And if we can't accomplish that, then it's not contributing to the, to the profit, um, or, or revenue that's supporting mm -hmm. the overall operation. So yeah, it's, it's refreshing to hear that you guys are able to create something that focuses on cross training and, uh, you know, development in, in a holistic way. That's, that's good to hear. Yeah. And, yeah. uh, uh, you know, just again, from the outside looking in, I think that's a, it is an admirable model. Um, I'm, again, not too humble to turn away a compliment. I just hadn't really thought of it as something special before. I, within capitalism, any of these projects I think are, are, uh, you know, that, that's at least deserve an honorable, bar. honorable mention. <laughs> no, but that's actually, that, there's more to that than I, yeah. 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 Do you want to expand that's, on that? Oh no, I just, wow. Okay. No, this is, this is just a quick aside. The, um, you just got me remembering that I actually didn't have any of the, um, prerequisites or like the correct degree for any of the accounting stuff that I actually started. Uh -huh. I just lied on my resume <laughs> and then they hired me and then I had references from a previous job. And so mm -hmm. that's, that's the only reason that I'm actually here doing this now is because I, um, because I lied and applied to a bookkeeper job. <laughs> I forgot uh, about that. <laughs> fake it till you make it. Fake it till you make it. That's that's pretty awesome. No, that's that's part of being that's... human. We all fake it till we make it. How do you go to sleep? You lay down in bed and pretend you're already asleep. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> you think about that that and copious amounts of alcohol. Hey, and, you know, uh, everybody's got to cope the way they got to cope. Everyone's got to cope under this hellscape that we, uh, we live in. Um, I'm interested in hearing about the challenges that you ran into with getting a tactical ballistic armor manufacturing operation going, like, please explain <laughs> where to begin. We've oh, run into a dude. lot. Um, I'd say our three biggest hiccups and correct me if you think yeah. that I I'm leaving something out or I, I, I think our, our a number one hiccup 
is ironically state interference. Um, <laughs> we lost a considerable amount of, amount a, of time it, and money. Like our okay, we are sitting on three ongoing research and development projects, which have been delayed by at least two months, probably more, uh, as a result of. Uh, the amount of money we lost dealing with customs and border protection, God bless them, um, seizing a package of ours, uh, which we are never going to have returned, by the way, mm -hmm. despite the fact that we already won the legal appeal and proved that the law under which they seized it doesn't even apply to us. They literally mixed up the words import and export. And that's their job. How do you fuck that up? Anyway, though, that, I'm not going to get into too much of a tangent. It about is this, the government, but, so oh, I, I yeah, hope that it can answer your question. I, you know, <laughs> I'm really upset that it does actually, but um, yeah. So they seized a package. Uh, they said that we had illegally imported something based on uh, a law that literally only applies to things that are imported for the purpose of future export. We don't export anything. That entire law has nothing to do with us. And we lost a $2,200 shipment. It's just gone. Oh, my God. And we've paid something like sixteen dollars or $1,800 in legal fees, making sure that they don't seize any more of our shipments. Yeah. Um, and we literally, we killed, we killed the business checking account and paid a bunch of our own money into getting this shit mess sorted out. And we are still recovering. Yeah. And that was, what, like a month it's ago? It's crazy. And we were doing... We just we just won the legal appeal last month. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we were doing pretty good there for a minute. Like we had a good it ball was rolling. Good. But, yeah. Um, and that and so that happened, and now we've got a letter from them saying, "Oh yeah, we fucked up." And we'll try not to do it again. We'll try not to do it again. Uh, and and uh, so we've got that. So if they take anything in the future, we like, could you not? Yeah. Are you sure? Did, did they investigate themselves and find that they? didn't do anything wrong or no um they required that we sign a, a whole blameless agreement mm. as part of getting our package back and they wanted us to sign that and hold them blameless for fucking us mm -hmm. uh uh in order to even begin the process of talking about whether or not they would ever release our package and by the time i mean like we blew past a deadline on getting our package back trying to get through this process but uh they can absolutely kiss my ass if they think i'm going to hold them blameless for illegally seizing a huge shipment that we need um and we're going to be recovering from that probably for the rest of the year actually yeah, but, yeah um obviously. so that's our a number one um our b number two is a general lack of knowledge in the public about what exactly body armor is how it works how it's regulated yeah. and how it's certified uh, because the number of people who have come along to say something snide or snippy about us not being certified um, is extremely frustrating because all of them want to start the conversation at the beginning, no matter how many times I've had this conversation with how many people, mm -hmm. that even the big boy suppliers like fucking Hesco don't certify their entire line of products. They certify one or two flagship products that they sell in bulk to this capital S state. 
And to clarify here, we're talking about NIJ certification. And I, yeah, so yeah, I was gonna think, yeah, yeah, ballistic yeah. certification. So NIJ certified ballistic armor, and like I understand that, and like, and if that's your comfort level, if you don't want to go out into the world wearing armor that isn't NIJ certified, I am not going to bust anyone's yeah, balls about fine. that. Yeah, I respect that. You know, this is your life you're playing with, but like. The amount of shady marketing. The amount of shady marketing that goes that into other people pe- do, yeah. where they think they're buying NIJ certified stuff. And yeah, not. I'd say about two thirds. I'd say a full two thirds of the people who are insistent that they will only ever wear armor that is NIJ certified, TM, rubber stamped, um, don't own any because the overwhelming majority of products are not NIJ certified. The NIJ certification list has something like. 60 companies and a total of 72 products in the entire country. It's something, some stupidly I, small number. I think it's more than that. It's but more, yeah. Yeah, I, I think yeah. I'm underestimating. I was, I, but like, I, you, yeah. you look through the it's, list. It's and very like, small. You go and look at some of these, like, it's one very page. large companies. It's one page. Like, you don't have to flip through pages of results. There's one yeah. page of certified companies on the NIJ's website. Yeah. And, uh, it's kind of, kind of worrisome given how many companies that kind of, uh, you know, sell themselves as tactical and, yeah. and defense. Yeah. Um, and then that's the thing is that like, and, and I don't want to drag it because in-house testing is most of what we do. We've done a little bit of laboratory testing and it's extremely expensive and we hope to do more in the future when we've got mm-hmm. the budget for it. Mm-hmm. But um, so I don't want to drag people for doing in-house testing. That'd be very hypocritical. But what I do want to drag mainstream suppliers for is implying, or in many cases, and I'm not going to name drop because I don't want to get a cease and desist. I don't want to get cease and desisted to death, but uh, y- you'll know who I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> um, not not just shadily implying, but outright lying about your product being NIJ certified mm-hmm. when it doesn't uh, appear on that list. When it does not, in fact, appear on that list, yeah. um, is is an extremely common practice. Um, and I guess our real sin is being unwilling to lie about what is and is not yeah, certified. Yeah, it's really hard to, um, it, it's hard when all of the other suppliers are sort of have this spoken or unspoken agreement that like, we're all just going to pretend some of our stuff is NIJ certified and we're going to be really like, we're going to intentionally obscure how to find out what is or isn't NIJ certified it's really hard to then have marketing that's just like, hey, everybody, we aren't NIJ certified, just so you know. Um, Buy our products. Spend $200 or more, probably. Yeah, and that's the thing. So, like, and I understand that, but, like, so I'm not, I am not going to jump on anybody about this. If you don't want to wear armor that isn't NIJ certified, I respect that. I, you know, Mm -hmm. but... Could you, but know least, what you're... could you at least know what it is you're insisting on? Right. Especially when the thing you are uh, putting on your body is is intended to, like, offer protection against fucking bullets. Right? Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing is that, like, I'm not going to give anybody grief about that. This is your life. Uh, you know, your own comfort about your life and survival is your business. I'm absolutely not going to give anybody grief about this. Right. But and there's another level to this, too, that it is prohibitively expensive. I mean, the reason that like even some of the name brands don't certify everything is because it costs twenty thousand dollars per model. Oh, my God. Which means that that's why, you know, that's the low end. You have companies who have their, you know, their level four flat plate is NIJ certified. But if they want to have a curved plate in that same exact design with those same exact materials, Mm -hmm. 
they have to pay another $20,000 for it. Wow. And so, and you have to re-up that. that that's okay. not like it's a subscription based thing. So, yeah, it's, so it's what I'm hearing. This, this is an annual cost, not a one-time. Oh, they're, they're the Adobe of, yeah. yeah. And, oh and God, that's, that's going to get us a season assist. That's, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> maybe we'll bleep that out yeah. or something. We, we are the, um, the company that charges exorbitant rates for substandard products. Yeah. Is and that the, what we're trying to say? And, yeah. yeah. And that's, that's the thing, right? So, and, and if Red Star wanted to get our entire product lineup NIJ certified, that would cost us $120,000 a year. And our total revenue, and I, you know what? Uh, I, our, our total gross receipts, don't don't say it because it's embarrassingly small. Don't say it. Is don't it a it. negative value? Um, per, that's per our chance. net receipts. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, moving on. Moving um, on. But, so, uh, but we, we couldn't, the annual cost of NIJ certifying oh, yeah, it's, our it's, stuff. It's out of... Scope it's, for most, for almost yeah, I'm, anybody I'm a, trying to start up without yeah, there, a huge there's amount no of way that yeah, there's with. there's absolutely no way to do it as a you startup. can't um, yeah, and that's we are years yeah. away, now, years and years now, away. Laboratory testing to that standard is in our future, mm-hmm. uh, our immediate future. We've we've had one product tested. We don't produce that product anymore, so I'm feeling really stupid about spending almost two thousand dollars on that test, then turning right around and designing a better plate. I'm still kicking myself about that. People don't let me forget. Um, uh, but that was when we made the transition to silicone carbide as our tile material, which invalidated all of our earlier testing. Right. Um, it also brought the strength and weight of the plate, uh, improve, improved them both greatly, mm-hmm. um, brought the weight down by over a pound and brought the back face deformation down by almost a centimeter. Um, which wh- if, if you're listening and you don't know what that means, um, Basically, it's it's how much the bullet will still hurt you behind the plate, even if it doesn't necessarily penetrate. Right? Yeah, it's uh, it's the the dimple on the back of the plate where it got hit by a bullet, and um, you want to minimize that to the best of your ability. And there is an NIJ standard for the depth, and uh, and and I want to talk about that a little bit when we get into more of like the testing we do in house. Sure. Uh, but yeah, I mean that's we so we made it was worthwhile improvement, but. I swear to God, like if I had known we were going to make that transition, we would not have spent money getting the old design tested. So, so so we now, we know we've got, we've got testing results for a product we no longer sell because it's heavy and expensive. Right. I mean, maybe the the plus side is that you, you went through the design, the engineering design process, you developed something and you know, Mm -hmm. you can go back to it. So if at a later point that becomes the more feasible model to produce, you you have your data already. Um, If silicone carbide becomes outrageously overpriced again, uh, right now, silicone carbide is the cheapest it's ever been in history. Um, uh, it, and that's a rather recent development, actually. I think it's some, some absolute madman material sciences genius came up with a way to center silicone carbide, uh, uh, material that it, at a lower temperature to produce a harder and cleaner crystal than the old high temperature method. So like they're, they're producing a better quality silicone carbide part mm-hmm. and it costs way less money to make. So that was it was a huge qualitative change in the material sciences, and that is probably the only reason we can afford to use silicon carbide. Actually, yeah. Okay. Um, real quick, we said it a lot. Maybe we could just briefly touch on 
NIJ, which, if I'm not mistaken, is National Institute of Justice? Yes. Um, so the National Institute of Justice has a set of standards for body armor uh, based on different rating levels, uh, re- basically corresponding to common ballistic threats in North America. Um, now, they made a lot more sense in, what was it, the 70s or yeah. the 80s when they originally wrote the first round because nobody uses 38 Special in 2021. <laughs> It's it's almost obscure at this point, um, and I don't think I've ever seen a forty four Magnum in the wild. Yeah, not, not really. No, I don't. I don't. I don't. I've never seen one in the wild. The fact no, that I've, that's the testing round. For... Yeah, but but okay. So that I'm getting off on a tangent already. <laughs> but so the National Institute of Justice has this standard. They have it as a, a public institution. They do laboratory stuff, and they've determined like. Uh, body armor that meets these specifications reduce wounding by this rate for these statistical reasons so that um, capital S state institutions can make purchasing decisions about equipment for uh, paramilitary and police forces in the United States. Um, so that's where those standards come from. Um, and uh, as it stands right now, the standards are many layers of compiled revision uh, complicating everything. And, um, uh, you can definitely tell that there was a lot of addenda (laughs) that sort of got baked into various revised editions of these standards. Like, um, three a is shittier than three. (laughs) Um, uh, there is no one, one does not exist in the current iteration of the standard. Um, (laughs) <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, it's it's very clear that this has this is an evolved process that has developed from earlier iterations. Is what sure. I'm saying is that it's very clear on its face that this started somewhere else, right? And, and then it, it wound up here. It ends up being very confusing. Um, it, sure, it's, I w- confusing is a very polite way to say it. Uh, yeah, it, yeah, it's a mess. It's an absolute mess, and that's and that's exactly and and they're they're working on that. Like I'm not trying to throw anyone on, under the bus in their laboratory department administrative momentum is a hell of a thing to deal with. And I'm not going to try and dunk on anybody who's navigating that shit mess. Um, they've got a new one in the pipe that is trying to streamline, clear all that shit out and just start over from square one and make a standard that makes sense in 2021, Mm -hmm. uh, or rather in 2012 when they started this process and they have not finished. Well, of course it's, it's a government process. It's going to be, yeah, there's going to be layers of, it's going to be released three days late. Yeah. Um, and that's so the new one that's coming out is actually very like sensical and yeah. and very common sense instead of having a bunch of numbered iterations that have no tie specifically to what they're actually about they've broken it up into handgun armor versus rifle armor mm-hmm. and they've given it a basic numbered system handgun 1 is for little handguns handgun 2 is for big handguns by by little and big you mean like caliber size not um like i mean a... i mean total kinetic energy Okay. Um, because effectively caliber size, effectively and, caliber and, and size the for hands. muscle velocity, energy. Um, yeah. yeah, it it so that's terminal ballistics is incredibly hard to index. Um, there's so much math going into that, and so much difference in what happens. I mean, that's why you end up with situations where like five five six puts about twelve hundred foot pounds on target at close range engagements. And 5.56 is significantly better at putting about three to 800 of those foot pounds on the far side of a piece of body armor Mm. uh, than um, 
the 762 by 51 NATO, which puts something like 2,800 foot-pounds of energy on target. It's much easier to stop. And it's, it is much easier to stop with armor, mm-hmm. despite the fact that it's, all, it's over twice as much total energy. Um, protecting someone from it is much easier. You can do it with a much lighter piece of armor um, and distribute that energy over a much wider area to reduce the total amount of bruising and broken ribs underneath that armor. Right. So terminal ballistics is way too complicated to simply index. Yeah. Um, and, and that's another part of the problem with developing these sorts of standards is, um, so what they, what they're doing with the new one, I, I respect where they basically weighted against like the weight and ergonomic complexity of the weapon being used against you, which translates actually pretty well. Um, because, and then it's more about the threat profile or then the threat profiling ends up making sense in, in stages of escalation. Mm-hmm. Um, so I like where they're going with that. It makes sense. And, Hopefully, someday, it will become the official policy of the National Institute of Justice, but we'll see. From my perspective, I think it's probably, uh, generally speaking, a good idea to have a standard that is, you know, public information Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, against which you can uh, can test the armor. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that the current iteration or, or what have you is the correct answer, but at least on some philosophical level, like there should be a standard oh, that is dictated. Absolutely. It would be a mess. Yeah. As much as we complain about like the current industry and the current NIJ standard, it would be so much worse if there was no like publicly posted or like even just like if the government was just like, Hey, just do whatever. Like, sure. Cause you, yeah. you know, I, I could then turn around and make the claim that, well, you know, this body armor is rated to, you know, super Saiyan four and is going to yeah. stop this specific caliber, but then doesn't hold up to, Exactly. Something else. Yeah, and that's that's actually a very. It's. Uh, I'm, I'm excited that you brought that up because that is a very real thing. Yeah. Um. Again, with that terminal ballistics being weird. Mm-hmm. Um. So when we were doing our first round of design iterations way back in the beginning of 2020, like this is like pre-pandemic times, um, pre-lockdown anyway. Um, our first development iteration did really well against 30 caliber threats. So that's NIJ level three. Um, and then, but it did really poorly against five, five, six. And what we were hoping to do was to develop something that could handle five, five, six and 30 caliber threats, because that's North America. Mm-hmm. Um, there's an AR 15 on every corner, uh, that needs to be part of your, your threat model. If you're developing a mainline mainstream armor. Sure. So, so our second iteration of the armor a plus five five six performance um we um we had uh an accidental um shot that went way too close to an earlier shot so when we're doing these testing things we want to space them out at least an inch and a half usually two inches that's the nij standard um and we're trying to follow that as closely as possible or or exceeding it Mm -hmm. if when necessary or when possible. Um, and, uh, so we had one that took M855 ball, two rounds, half an inch apart from each other. A plus, when we're talking A plus performance, exceeded our wildest dreams expectations and just could not handle 30 cal at all. Right. Which should not have happened. Didn't even make sense to us at the time because all we'd done is thicken everything. Yeah. So there's more of everything than there was on the one that loved to eat 30 cal all day. So we've learned a lot about material sciences doing this yeah. project. <laughs> let me tell you. Um, 
But yeah, so that's the thing is that like you can have a product that you think will do everything you want it to do and you've changed something about it, something that should only make it stronger. Suddenly it now work. it doesn't do what you, you thought it was go going to do because it turns out that again. by making the backing panel stronger, you're holding the tiles more stiffly, which causes them to respond to being struck by projectiles differently. <laughs> Funny story. Yeah. Uh, how much support you give a rigid structure radically changes how it handles being struck by a flying object. Hmm, curious. I know. Um, so yeah, so we... we there, yeah, basically you have to test everything against everything or you don't actually know. There's just too many independent variables in terminal ballistics. Yeah. So then, so I, I think what, you know, to bring it back to the challenge you said you face, which is people not really knowing what they're buying. Mm. I, I think that's what we were kind of yeah. on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah that's, that's where we, that's where we got off on this. Yeah. Tangent. So thank you for bringing us back. Yeah, no, no, no worries. <laughs> so you have a public standard, mm. uh, a technical standard that is clearly defined and is accessible to the public. Mm -hmm. And then uh, maybe there should also be a system of, of documentation for every product. If you want to market it, it has to be documented and should not have oh, yeah. the, you know, the financial burden of $20,000 a year to, yeah. to get it on that list. But you know, then that's a pay to win sort of situation. Exactly. And so yeah. you can, you can have the industry dominated by the select few shops or, or organizations, mm -hmm. what have you that, have that type of funding yeah. and and given how capitalism works and given how you know business corporate whatever works we know who has the money and it's not yeah it's not comrades who have the interests of fellow working class people at heart no. it is the people who are seeking <laughs> to profit off of something that is allegedly designed to protect you in a dangerous situation yeah. and so i you know my my own experience with this um I didn't even know this uh, due to my limited knowledge about armor when I was deployed and I had my sappy plates, which are the, the military issued plates for, you know, going overseas and, and having body armor, whatever. They have a big stamp on them that says like, you know, braided to 762 NATO. Mm -hmm. And so you're sitting there like, oh, that's the biggest bullet that I know of because it comes out of this specific machine gun. So yeah. I feel cool. And it turns out that a smaller caliber, you know, maybe even lower velocity cartridge or lower energy cartridge could have defeated the armor that I thought I was protected wearing, which yeah. is really um, like, I'm yeah. glad I didn't get shot or yeah. anything, but that's yeah. Five, yeah. four, five gives sappy plates a run for their money. Oh, uh, five, four, five by three, nine. Yeah. Yep. Um, the e sappy does a lot better. Okay. I do. I want to say that I have not seen the specs on this, but based on the, enormous jump in cost i believe they transitioned to using boron carbide as their tile material and that is that is like the the most gucci <laughs> i don't even know i don't even know what ex what word to use it's it's magic it's a magic material it's light as air and it stops everything mm -hmm. but it also costs nine gajillion fucking dollars yeah um, okay that... but yeah you're you're absolutely right like that's the thing is that like and the military standard is in many ways more rigorous than the NIJ, but nobody in the civilian industry is using it. Right. Uh, which is kind of weird because, you know, usually you'd think there'd be some chud somewhere who's doing the military standard flex, right? But there isn't. I, was, I looked around for that when I was thinking about maybe doing a couple of tests to the military standard and see if anybody else in the industry was doing that. And nobody who is not I producing guess. an yeah. eSAPI plate to sell to the Department of Defense right. is doing that testing at all. Right. Yeah. 
um, it's it's weird. It's it's like the NIJ testing standard is is completely dominated the civilian market, um, and it, yeah, like like Jay was saying earlier, like it's 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 better to have that standard than to have no standard. And I definitely would agree with your assessment that like a public facing standard is necessary for consumer protection to exist. Um, and I, I'm not, and I, I hope that I haven't said anything that gives people the impression that I'm knocking the idea of having a standard. I would just really like to have a standard that makes sense. Sure. That isn't, <laughs> isn't held up by the red tape and isn't set in science of 10 years ago, which, you know, as we know, science is a continuous, you know, process. Oh, the science and, of 40 yeah. years ago, unfortunately. Oh yes. Touche. Yeah. Touche. Um, so I think this is a good opportunity to maybe segue from the really, you know, into the details about the, the technical side of things mm-hmm. to, um, kind of bigger picture. What responsibility do you feel you have? Uh, you know, what is that burden of responsibility that you carry to manufacture armor that isn't necessarily getting tested and put on documentation that has the NIJ rating. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you are, you are still saying I have this product that is going to protect you from this level of threat. Like how do you, how do you navigate that responsibility? From a purely moral standard, um, I navigate that responsibility by testing to my own satisfaction to wear, mm-hmm. which, um, uh, one, another reason why it would be awfully hypocritical for me to give anyone grief about not wanting to wear anything that wasn't NIJ certified is I, I actually don't want to wear anything that's NIJ certified because I see the flaws in that system. I don't feel that that testing is sufficient. It's the bare so minimum. It, 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 in many ways it is. And, um, uh, uh, I, a little homework for the audience, go see the rejection and withdrawal letters for all the mainstream brands. Because no names here, just I'm not I, I don't, don't yeah, want to deal with just, the headache. I, yeah, we, <laughs> they I don't, don't want to all pass. I don't want to get <laughs> into cease and desist. Land, they don't all but pass. <laughs> what, the reason they have a random retesting that they do uh, with no warning is because several big name brands that you have all heard of before have had their products delisted for weeks at a time because they have had plates pulled off of the assembly line and tested and fail. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, so I was overseas on deployment, and the plates that I was wearing to go outside of the wire, mm. uh, you know, there's one day we're sitting there, uh, I was not on shift, I was like watching TV or, or you know, mm. browsing the internet, wasting my time, and uh, I get a call from uh, somebody from my the company office, the, the unit that I was a part of, and they're like, oh, by the way, uh, we need you to bring your plates down. Uh, there's a recall on this, you know, if it falls within this number and I'm sitting here, I'm sitting here. Like I was just, I was just outside the wire like two days ago Mm -hmm. and where I was, there wasn't necessarily like an active threat. There there was always this pervasive, you know, this specific group was known to be in the area and they had carried out attacks and bombings and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And, um, so it was, it was there. And fortunately I was not in a situation where I was like taking a whole bunch of, you know, rounds to the chest and it turns out my armor was not working. And so I, you know, wouldn't be sitting, uh, sitting here before you today, but still the fact that, you know, in a combat zone, they were like, by the way, we're recalling these and let's give you some new ones. <laughs> That's wild. And I, I went like three days where they, they took them and I didn't have plates. What? I, I also, I didn't go outside of the wire, but I, yeah. I was still there and didn't have plates. And then they were like, all right, come get your new plates. 
That was like, and they weren't the same as the old place. Uh, I mean, they they allegedly fit the bill of not being on the recall list, you know, but that's not uh, to say that they were actually adequate. Yeah, that's was true. it? They that's why they say uh, military grade sounds really different to a veteran. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What what I hear is when you say it's it's manufactured to military specification, I hear that the lowest bidder, you know, yeah. did the bare minimum and got the contract. <laughs> So yeah, yeah don't that, that yeah don't fall for it. Um, that's very much a thing, and um, so from a responsibility end, um, I feel like we have an obligation to be better than that. Like a recall is great, and if we ever did find out that we put something out there that needed to be brought back or replaced with something that works, we'd do the recall. But from a moral standpoint, I don't ever want to be in that position because I don't want to have ever sold or distributed a piece of armor to a comrade that I would not be put myself behind mm -hmm. that is not rigorously tested that is not identical to a plate that I have watched with my own eyes eat rounds mm -hmm. um, and that that is a very much there's very much a, a moral dynamic to that and um, there, there's there's an obligation there and it's it's one of the reasons why we fill orders slowly um, is because our QC process is. I'm going to go ahead and say egregious. I'll eat that. I'll take responsibility for that. I know it drives other people crazy sometimes, um, but we, we do yeah, we do batch testing. Um, whenever we get a new set of materials, we do a random sampling. We manufacture a plate from a random sampling materials from every new batch. Mm -hmm. We shoot the bejesus out of it. If anything is not perfect. Um, we will send the fucking materials back to the manufacturer if yep. it comes to it. Uh, we have only had to do that one time, God bless, because we can't afford to do that a lot without <laughs> taking a long break to save up money from our W-2 jobs again. But, um, yeah, like, like the, this batch of tiles right here, these silicon carbide tiles right here, they did not meet muster and we did not buy any more tiles from that company. Yeah. Um, and, uh, we, we do random samplings from everything, um, and we, we test every new batch of materials, even from known and trusted suppliers. Uh, we got that pile of shot up plates over there. Every time we get a new batch of materials, we go out to the range again yep. and, um, cut it open and dissect it afterwards. And anytime we make any change to the design, even something as simple as changing the outline without changing the thickness of any of the materials, without changing the glue, even just changing the outline of the plate, we take it back out and we put it through all the paces all over again from square one because yeah, just the, even just the thought that I might have given someone something and said, you can trust this when they couldn't, it gives me like never sleep again anxiety. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's yeah. <laughs> and yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, it is really hefty when you're like putting these together and you're like, shit, you're, you're just thinking to yourself like every somebody's time, gonna be like wearing that on their back yeah like every time like, every time i put one of these together exactly like every time i don't I, know who's gonna end up with that but like it's, yeah. gonna, it's gonna be the day that you know some uh some trud in portland decides to actually open fire on the streets like uh yeah right as of the yeah, recording of this uh there was recently a um some guy that some people thought he maybe had an airsoft rifle. Some people thought it was the real deal. Regardless, he was pointing what was apparently an AR-15 at random passerby, and he had his finger on the trigger. And you know, yeah. if if it was truly an AR-15, 
you know, he, he could have decided to just start opening fire and, and any of the protests that people go to, um, any of the, anything where, you know, proud boys or well, shoot people. It happens. It's well, yeah, exactly. They, they shoot people. And then, um, and, uh, I will never, I mean, like I, I will never tolerate people saying that Antifa is violent when, uh, when, uh, chuds and, uh, alt-right types and crypto fascists can walk around the street pointing guns at people without getting clapped right there in front of everyone. Right. Um, because like, I am, I am honestly surprised that he could sweep a crowd like that with a muzzle and not just get shot right there. Especially in downtown Portland, where I, if I understand the situation there correctly where there's been constant actions and protests and whatnot mm-hmm. from leftists and you know various groups various orgs all sorts of people and I, I am sure that there's been tons of cops in that area yeah and then of course uh i don't remember how long ago it was because this this past year year and a half has felt like a decade yeah. but at one point there were you know the federal protective service agents and their contractors yeah. pulling guns on people and yeah and you know, doing that in a in a small area of Portland, so like, yeah, it it's just a matter of time. I feel like where yeah, you know, right. someone is actually going to need their life saved by the armor that they maybe bought from from you. Yeah, yeah. That, um, there's there's a significant amount of Red Star gear in the Portland in the Multnomah County area right now, and uh, I like I'm not at all anxious about whether or not it will work. Mm-hmm. But I am deeply anxious for the health and safety of our comrades in that what is effectively a war zone. Um, so I'm really hoping that nobody ever has to test our equipment. In yeah, the and, that, and that's situation. the goal. Although uh, we did have somebody buy one just to test. That's true. That was crazy. And he that was great. The footage and he hit it with that. Uh, he sent it back to us. Yeah. Uh, we yeah. have a panel right over here. Um, oh, that's oh, so. So again, getting back to that moral responsibility question, uh, anything we don't manufacture that we buy and carry, we test to that same level of ridiculous rigor because we're still we're, we're still putting our names on it mm-hmm. just by redistributing. Yeah. Um, and people are I mean, uh, people are going to take our word for it if we say that this is armor. And, uh, and I, so the soft armor panels that we don't manufacture ourselves, we don't have the, we don't have the capacity to do that. Sure. Uh, textile work is a little bit beyond us. Um, but, uh, like the soft armor panels, we, we've tested those to death and back. Yeah. Um, and one of those soft armor panels, uh, some absolute mad lad, uh, had a block of plus, uh, Roma plastilina, which is the ballistic testing clay. Okay. He had like a block of that shit. That shit is $30 a pound. I know because I'm sitting on 40 pounds of it. It, it is, it is pull your teeth expensive to do real ballistic testing. And, uh, and some guy just bought like a 10 pound block of clay. He got one of our soft panels and shot it with 30 carbine. And it caught it. I think the back face deformation was beyond NIJ spec, but it's fucking 30 carbine mm-hmm. from a carbine. Yeah. And soft armor is not supposed to work on that at all. So right. like, so we, we, we were really rigorous yeah, we were with our, happy with we were very happy with that to discover that. But I mean, we had never even considered testing it to that level yeah. Um, because it's, it's outside of what it's supposed to be able to do. Right. But yeah. we put all of our shit through some pretty aggressive paces. I yeah. Mean, I was thinking about the duty shot with the M1. Yeah. Uh, yeah. uh, that was ridiculous. I'm surprised it worked. Was it chambered um, in 30 out six? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, so we, yeah, uh, 
a like that carbine costs more than my car. <laughs> um, wow, that's, uh, that's to, wild. to get a real, honest to goodness, like historical M1. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, anyway, that's that's neither here nor there. So let me ask you this: What should you avoid when you are manufacturing armor? Um, you know what what could potentially lend itself to a substandard product, or you know something that people maybe can't trust even if it was made in good faith from fellow working class people um you know what mm. what are you not going to do in your manufacturing process i well, guess yeah well I, I got a quick preface for that as well is that so so the issue of good faith is irrelevant in the terms of material sciences because mm. at the end of the day it doesn't matter what you meant to do the plate either stops bullets or it doesn't right and no amount of good faith is going to put anyone's blood back on the inside. Right. So it's it's like the uh, the intention versus impact argument. Yeah. That, and this and yeah. with the impact being ballistic, I think that intention really does Literal not come impact. into it. Yeah. Um. And so that being said, like you absolutely should not mislead people about what your product can do. Um. And and in the mainstream industry, that's extremely common. Um, again, I don't want to duck those ceases and desists, but there are some people who are particularly famous for metal body armor who have gone (laughs) out of their way to misrepresent what it can and cannot do Mm -hmm. and what the complications of metal armor are and are not, um, in terms of fragmentation and what does and does not mitigate that fragmentation comes to mind, but you should, you should never misrepresent what your product can do. You should be um, real with yourself about what what you're setting out to do. To I mean, even if you're a smaller, you know, setup and you're doing this well intentioned, yeah, you have to be real about it. like this could fail. Like you're going out and yeah, you're shooting this plate that you made that like cost you at least a hundred bucks, if not two hundred bucks, to make, and all this time and effort and everything, and you really want it to work, but like you have to be real about the fact that like hey, maybe this isn't gonna, maybe it's gonna let a bullet through, and we got to toss, we got to scrap the whole thing. If, sure. it, if it doesn't work, we're not selling it. Yeah. Um, and that's hard sometimes to like, you see that you see it, the bullet hit and you kind of get the sense that like, I think that went through. Yeah. yeah. I've had a couple of butt clenchers out on the range myself. Um, when we've had plates, when we've had yeah. test plates fail. But just being um, honest about it. Yeah. When it fails, it fails. It, when that's it fails, it. it fails. You got to change set, something. You, you got to figure out why. Yeah. And if it doesn't meet your standard that you set ahead of time, then it's done. You don't sell it. You don't shift your goalposts. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You don't say, well, like, oh, it was borderline, so... Look, you don't design a level 3 plate, put a hole in it with a level 3 rifle, and then say, oh, well, I guess it's a pistol plate. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, stuff like that. Um, and, and that's, yeah, and if you don't understand why something failed in a freak accident, or, like, you had, like, one... Mm-hmm. Oh, it, it did one weird thing one time. It did the weird thing one time, and you don't know why. You, scrap it. You have to start over. You have to figure out why. If you don't know why it failed, then you don't know why it's going to fail next time. Mm-hmm. You have to start over. You have to find out why. You can't leave that. Oh, it only failed one time out of ten. <laughs> That's a lot of times. That's a lot of times. <laughs> um, and and yeah, and it and it's and I I, I want to have sympathy because like a huge amount of effort goes into making a piece of ballistic armor and then to take it out to the range and test it and have it fail when it should not have failed mm-hmm. when an identical plate that you tested last week succeeded that's 
beyond frustrating. I don't even have a word for how fucking annoying that is. Sure. Like, cause there's, there's, there's an element of shame. There's an element of confusion and, and like, I made this thing and it worked last time and it didn't work this time. What the fuck? And now it's on video. <laughs> like, right. um, and, uh, how come you only work when no one's watching? Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and, and I, I want to be sympathetic for that, but if you take that product that you know failed once and sell it to somebody, that is gross negligence. Oh, absolutely. And I'll own that position. And yeah. if somebody wants to cease and desist me over it, they can fly out here and talk to my face. But that is gross negligence. Yeah. Well, what if they put the disclaimer that like 50% of the time it works 100% of the time? Oh, well, then that's well, fine. That's you know what? If you marketing. tell people what you are giving them and you are honest about when it does and does not work, that's fine. Because we there's nothing that we sell that can't be beaten by some bullet. Some asshole is going to have an M2 on the back of yeah, his Yeah, I was going to say, 50 BMG is going to yeah. defeat every arm. <laughs> I, I don't have anything that can stop 50 BMG. And somebody's going to come along with some random moon bullet with a tungsten carbide pin and put a hole in a piece of armor. There's nothing that you can do about that. They're going to have their, they're going to have saved their, uh, you know, depleted uranium from their deployment to wherever. Yeah. A by handful at a time. <laughs> yeah. You, you, you got a one piece at a time. It didn't cost me. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, but that's the thing is that like, there's, there's always going to be a ballistic threat that nobody saw coming. There's always going to be the weird moon bullet. There's always going to be the asshole who had a piece of tungsten carbide rod that he machined down into a bullet shape himself in his basement. There's nothing you can do about that. You can't be prepared for those sorts of out-of-context problems. But what you can do is not tell somebody that you are selling them level 3 rifle armor when you know that a level 3 rifle threat has put a hole in it. Or when you know that like fragmentation will kill them anyway. Right. Or, like, yeah, and that's a big issue with steel armor as sure. well. That I, yeah. I just, just while we're here talking about it, fragmentation mitigation on steel ballistic plates is doable. It's not even hard. It's what Evolutionary Arms and Armor's product line was built around was AR-500 steel ballistic plates with fragmentation mitigation that actually worked and did not weigh 16 extra pounds. Um, and that's the part about the mainstream industry sellers who are selling steel plates that drives me up the fucking wall mm -hmm. is that fragmentation mitigation can be done. It is time consuming. It is way more labor intensive than most of their manufacturing processes. And it's a lot more labor intensive than spraying three layers of Linex on it and calling it good. Right. Well, that's probably why they don't do it. If it's, it's labor exactly intensive, why they it's don't do not it. it's profitable. It's yeah. I mean, that, more, that is going to cut into their bottom line right. pretty badly. That's more, uh, uh, man hours, not to use the gendered term, but yeah, it's, 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 it's there's, more... there's a lot of labor effort that goes into it. And, yeah. um, and, you know, if you're going to sell a product for $115 that is a piece of steel that you bought from a steel mill for $29 and then sprayed $6 with a Linex onto paying someone $8 an hour to do it, and then all of a sudden you want somebody to spend three hours wrapping it in fiberglass and resin? Are you kidding me? It's, uh, that's going to cut like 30% of our profits That's out. capitalism, baby. But you know what it's also going to do? It's also going to keep somebody's blood on the inside. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's, that's a big part of our thing is like, we're trying, it, it's not good enough to put equipment out there that people can afford. It has to actually be <laughs> equipment that yeah. they can use. Right. Right. And that's, that's been our thing. Like when we, 
another thing that we do, we don't just manufacture, like we also have tactical gear that we source from other manufacturers. Uh, mostly it's white label equipment. Uh, a lot of it's white label military equipment. Um, a decent amount of it is white label other brands equipment. Right. Wink, wink, so white label nod, nod. meaning that um, uh, that might have a, a brand name associated with it elsewhere, but yes. and it's the same uh, exact so, piece of manufacturer. Um, yeah. Whatever. White label equipment. It refers to. It, it, it's also used to say white box sometimes. Um, it's when something has been manufactured uh, for another seller that would normally be branded, but in this case, it is not being branded. Um, and, uh, it is amazing how much you learn about industry price gouging when you find out how much you can sell an identical product when you for. find out who someone's distributor is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When you cut out the middleman. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's just me being aggro about industry bullshit and living in a capitalist hellscape. But, um, we, we try to be really rigorous with all of our stuff. So when we will buy sample, we'll get samples from dozens, we'll get dozens of samples from dozens of companies and we will abuse the bejesus out of these things. And uh, what we've actually come to find is the majority of suppliers, especially in, uh, in East Asia, their products are essentially identical, um, which is pretty cool actually. Um, and uh, I mean, there, there's, there's a great amount of precision and standardization going on there. And I think it's because, um, specifically the suppliers I'm thinking of, they all have one customer that they produce the majority of their products for. So they're all working from their own standard sheet. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know what? I don't know why I'm, I'm trying to like not name drop the people's Republic of China. I don't know. I just, <laughs> I got, in, I don't know. I just Republic got into this headspace where I was trying yeah. to avoid naming institutions, but the yeah, majority, I mean, a lot of, military. a lot of our white label <laughs> military equipment is normally purchased by, um, the, uh, the Chinese army or the Chinese police. And so the majority of our suppliers that sell this stuff, they are all working out of the exact same playbook for what the standard that they have to meet is. Mm-hmm. And all of these products come out essentially identical. Um, and, the, and even though they're coming from different factories in different parts of the country that are owned by different people. Um, but, uh, but we all, we do find that a lot of the stuff when they're making clones of, uh, North American gear that mm-hmm. is popularized by North American companies, a lot of them aren't making clones. They're making the gear. They're just not stitching the name brand label onto it. Um, and, uh, and that, that is, that's, we, we've run into some gems. Yeah. Uh, and I'm really tickled to death that we've been able to do that because, because this is some really mainline, good quality shit that I want people to have at, you know, a fair price. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah. uh, yeah. So anyway, we, that, that's, I'm getting off a little bit on a tangent because what I, what I really wanted to say about all this was we, we go looking like, like people would say, Hey, we want some gloves, right? Like, like you guys, can you guys get us some gloves? And we're like, all right, so we're going to go ahead and get sample gloves from like six different companies and a couple of different designs. And we're going to take those gloves out into the woods and we're going to punch trees and we're going to, we're going to grab jagged pipes and we're going to fuck those gloves up. And we're going to see like, where, where's the bang for the buck on this one? What is the, you know, and, uh, and provide you know make that available because anybody can go on aliexpress or wish and find a six dollar pair of gloves right but how do you know the six dollar pair of gloves you're getting is a six dollar pair of gloves not a dollar pair of gloves right Right. um and uh and that's something that like once we finally got some money put together for this project once we started selling stuff like 
buying 20 pairs of $6 gloves so I can pick out the one nice pair of gloves doesn't make any goddamn sense for me. It makes a lot of sense for us as a broader community. Right. Because we got, you know, we, we've got three or $400 put together. We can, we can fucking, we can buy nine gajillion pairs of gloves from a hundred different people and we can figure out which ones are good and we can buy a huge stack of those, turn around and sell them at a fair price. Um, and actually get some good quality, low price stuff out there. And it doesn't make sense to do as an individual. Like if I have a $30 glove budget, I'm not going to buy five pairs of $6 gloves and pick the one that's the best. I'm going to buy the $25 gloves that from that have a return policy and I'm going to be reasonably confident are going to be good. How much should a good quality hard knuckle glove cost? It's uh, like the entire chapter of Capital. Yeah, Das Kapital, <laughs> chapter seven. Um, yeah, but so so that's that's the thing that's been on my mind lately, and we've been we've been getting a lot of gear. Like um, uh, we've recently been getting some more sophisticated radio gear, and I don't think we're going to be able to carry that anytime soon. But we've we've been able to run down because turns out uh, even even with like man, like with like distributor discounts and bulk purchasing pricing and everything, like a good handheld DMR, we've we cannot yeah, get it yeah, for less than $195 yeah. and that's before shipping. So that's, we can't exactly stock those right now. Not when we're getting uh, all of our checking account pulled out through our nose by the f- f- crappy yeah. customs. Yeah. But um, I think we're into the weeds now. We're, yeah. I, I, into the weeds. But, but what I'm trying to get at is uh, one of the things we're trying to bring to the table or one of the things we're trying to provide to the broader leftist uh, milieu is um, there is such a thing as good, cheap stuff. It is impossible to tell from a picture on a website whether or not the cheap stuff is good or not. You got to buy it and find out. Sure. And we have collectivized that process by accident. <laughs> so collectively, you are taking one for the team. Yeah, and, and you know we're we're sharing. You know we're we're sussing that out. We're we're digging through it. We're trying stuff. Getting our hands fucked up. By getting our gloves. hands fucked up by shitty gloves. That is also happening. Um, and, uh, and, you know, we find the good stuff, we find the cheap good stuff and we get it out there. Like those battle belts were a magical find. I think we, we had, um, we got like 10 different designs. I think it was 10. No, because you got ten. You didn't tell me you got ten. No, I didn't tell you about every one that we got. Like they, they show you the one with the plastic, cheap ass plastic buckle. No. Okay, then then I didn't show you everything that okay. we got. Yeah. Um, uh, and I can tell you, that lady, I yelled at her because that said metal buckle and she told me it was a metal <laughs> buckle and then it got here and it was ABS. It wasn't even good plastic. It wasn't even glass-filled nylon. It was ABS. I broke it with my thumb. There anyway. you have it, folks. The inner workings of Red Star Tactical. <laughs> I am getting off in the weeds now, but like, <laughs> but like the, the battle belt, like we, we bought a bunch of different battle belts, a bunch of Molly, like the Molly, uh, hookup belts with the, uh, the fancy Cobra buckles or whatever, Cobra buckle clones. And, you know, we shopped around for that and we think we had like 10 different samples come through and, uh, and I didn't show you any sample that showed up after we picked that one. Yeah. Um, turns out if you buy 10 samples, um, Four of them will arrive in a week, and one of them will arrive six weeks after you've given up. <laughs> uh, <laughs> nice. Um, and uh, and you know, so we were able to find like, and it's a good quality product. We we've uh, we've tested the buckle. Like you can hang, I can hang my body weight from the buckle, uh, and do a little bounce test for a little shock loading. Um, That's I, the scientific standard. 
I don't I, I don't know what the science I don't I don't know what Underwriters Laboratory does to test belt buckles, but I shock loaded this thing with my own body weight, and that was pretty impressive to me because like a parachute buckle will not cannot handle shock loading from a 185 pound person. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, and and I wear one of those belts now. Like I was so happy with it. I replaced. I had a I had a Condor belt that I was mostly happy with. Like, it was a pretty good belt. Uh, but I swapped out, because this one's lighter, slimmer, and... I don't know, like, like it's hard to say what better means, because at this point, it, you're, you're getting into, like, what do I like in a battle belt? Sure. But I found I found the really snug uh, strap, like, molly strap slots is we preferable to me. move on to a more... Okay, I'm, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Point is, we're, we, we're, we're picking stuff out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Thank you for cutting me off. I was right. <laughs> so... Um, given how big capitalism is, that's a terrible way to frame that, but given the number of things that exist that you mm. could be making, yeah, why are you focusing on the tactical, you know, the body armor and getting all these mm. white label products and turning around and selling those? Like you could be manufacturing like Gucci, not, not Gucci brand, but like some mm. sort of super sweet, nice backpack with your understanding of mm. materials and, and you, or, or some other product there, there are any number of things you could be doing. Why is it you are doing armor? Why is it as we sit here in your basement, uh, workshop, there's like armor to my left and armor to my right. And everywhere I look is armor and materials for <laughs> armor. And like, why? Uh, you know, I get that. Yeah, I, I don't want to like, I want to give you a chance. Yeah. To I can take this. So, so yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think one of the main draws is that there's almost nobody else who's uh, on the left who's doing it. There, I mean, we sort of talked about a little bit before that there's a couple other people, but especially when we started this out, like there's basically nobody. You have to buy from you know some chetty right wing company, um, where with you know like you say backpacks. Mm-hmm. There's plenty of other companies that are buying backpacks. Some mm-hmm. of them are shittier than others, but. It doesn't sure. stand out the way this does. And I think, yeah, that was a real lacking, um, a real gap in what was available out there. Um, and especially like a knowledge gap too. And that's something that I've kind of like taken on more with this. I'm going to plug our Instagram right here. If you go check out our Instagram on Instagram.com, uh, <laughs> we have some like uh, informational posts, right? Cause the, the armor, portion was lacking but also the education portion too and as somebody who like just came into this you know like two years ago year and a half ago and just sort of learned all of that for the first time it's still pretty fresh and so that was a major thing for me that i wanted to go back out and now like explain this um and especially with the pandemic and everything like i used to have a part-time thing teaching guitar and i really missed that like teaching and like explaining portion and so i was like okay yeah i can do this like this can be a a teaching moment um, to sort of explain this sort of uh, obtuse NIJ standard details um, in a way that's not trying to necessarily sell it to a person the way everybody else is. Um, okay. So, so your interest is, is first and foremost in accessibility and in, in growing people's knowledge about this very niche subject. Yeah. And instead of maybe doing, you know, let's say back to bags where even if there are a million other bag manufacturers, if you created your 
your design and you fit, you found your niche within the world to sell those, you would have a wider audience. Not everyone, not even on the left, not everyone is going and buying armor and planning on using that in whatever situations, you know, but the uh, everyday items that, you know, other people buy, like leftists could buy it and just run in the mill people who don't care about Mm -hmm. politics or even from other political systems, beliefs, so on and so forth that, you wouldn't agree with, they could still be your audience and you could get, oh, excuse me, more, uh, more revenue. And, and the, the reason I think about that is, um, you know, my dream is to, to one day open some sort of co-op where I can pay my bills and I can not just survive, but thrive by, you know, collectively owning my own means of production with, yeah. you know, within a co-op or within a similar type structure. So, you know, with this body armor situation, you guys are sitting in the hole somewhere in the red Whereas, you know, something else, I'm, I'm just trying to wrap yeah. my head around that. And, and, you know, why choose something that's like this difficult <laughs> yeah. to yeah, make yeah, money? Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, all right. I, I think I can get that yeah. one. Okay. So like, you're absolutely right. If we were trying to make money, we'd do just about anything else. Um, there is beyond there being a dearth of left wing or even left friendly, or even just not hostile toward the left sources for tactical gear. Um, there aren't any affordable sources Mm -hmm. that aren't gouging or literal toys on wish that are marketed as real equipment. Um, that's, that's it. That's what's out there in the world. There are right-wing grifters. There are apolitical grifters. Yeah. And that's it. That's, that's what was, I mean, you know, two years ago when we got, you know, when this was really, when we were really working over whether or not we wanted to go forward with this, that was what the market was. It was right-wing grifters and apolitical grifters. Yeah. And so even beyond the political, I mean, not, not from our own politics or having a supplier that has a political belief system. Beyond that, there is a real threat to activists and leftists in this country of being fired on with guns. From any number of sources, And yeah. there is also uh, no affordable source of body armor. Um, like when I was looking, when I was first looking around for like, just get my own gear, uh, for myself this last summer, (sighs) I made all my own gear because that's what I can afford. (laughs) Um, and, uh, like there's a lot, there is some cheap stuff out there, but you get what you pay for on that, unfortunately. And like, there are some hundred dollar plates out there that will stop a bullet. They also weigh nine pounds. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that's, I I can wear a nine pound plate if I get to sit in a chair. Um, yeah, like you don't realize how heavy 25 pounds of gear is until you are running around in it for more than 20 minutes. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, people who know, know. <laughs> yeah, if, if you know, you know. <laughs> yeah, if you know, you know. Um, if you don't know, you are so lucky, and I hope you're, you go the rest of your life without ever finding yeah. out. Um, that is my sincere wish for you. That but should that, be the wish that we all have. Yeah, but that's that's <laughs> my lives. thing. Is that, right? Like, like make affordable tactical gear that is actually good enough to use. Yeah, did not exist. Um, I think to a very limited extent, it has begun to exist. And I don't want to like pat myself on the back too hard about this because I'm not doing this by myself. Even here in Red Star, I'm not doing this by myself. But like, I don't know how much affordable gear there would be if we hadn't started this. Right. 
Um, I, yeah, I'd have a lot less. I know that. <laughs> yeah. Like, and like, I don't want to like, like, I think I can get away with saying this, but I know for a fact that there'd be about 300 people in Multnomah County who did not have body armor right now. If mm-hmm. we did not start this project and blessedly knock on wood, nobody's had to use it yet. Uh, nobody's had to find out if it works yet. Uh, um, and I, I really hope that things don't keep getting crazier and that nobody ever gets shot wearing our products, but yeah, I sleep better at night knowing, and I feel better about not going down to Portland to take my lumps with everyone else, knowing that that armor is out there and that it's on our comrades down there between them and the bullshit. Sure. And that's, that's my personal motivation in doing this. It'd be great to run a co-op and make my living doing this. I'd love to fuck around in my basement doing material science games all day and pay my bills doing that. That'd be great. And I'm still trying. I think we can do it, but if we never do, that's okay. Cause that's not yeah. why we're doing this. Sure. You, you said something about things getting shittier. So maybe kind of some context for where a lot of people maybe came to firearms and, and came to body armor and other tactical goods, what have you. Um, so 2016, Trump was elected to office. He was mm. the, the upset, you know, dark horse candidate that for some reason liberals didn't think was going to win. Mm. And when he came, he ushered in a wave of neo-fascist uh, or crypto-fascist sympathies, a wave of uh, native nativist, uh, racism or nativist sympathies. Mm. And, uh, you know, there were measurable impacts from his presidency. We saw hate crimes, uh, whatever that might mean, depending where you are. I, I specifically mean racially motivated attacks or attacks against, uh, people who are LGBT people of color, political attacks. We, we saw a rise in those things. And then, um, a lot of that kind of came to um, this culmination, the pandemic kicked off in, you know, overseas in, in December or so in China and eventually made its way here by January, uh, February. And the pandemic started uh, towards the end of March, early April. Everyone got sent home from work except for essential workers. People, uh, a lot of people lost access to income and uh, a lot of people started buying guns and they started getting into armor. Uh, more so than they did when Trump got elected and they thought mm. maybe they were going to uh, need for whatever reason, whatever, whatever ideas they had in their, in their minds. So um, how I, I realize I kind of lost my train of thought. So now we have a liberal, eh, a centrist Democrat in office with Biden. Mm. You know, we no longer have the, the nativist, you know, neo or proto-fascist Trump who was, you know, some people argue he was, was not a fascist, but he enabled a lot of fascism to kind Mm -hmm. of creep. Um, And now Biden comes in and he's pledging to create a better tomorrow for the American people, a a less divided, more unified political situation. And yet we still see a lot of the, the political challenges from Trump's era kind of carrying over to this. Mm-hmm. How do you see yourself moving forward as a leftist co-op 
that is specifically, you know, manufacturing and, and distributing tactical gear in an era where they're looking for tighter gun control laws and rules and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And I, I know I've seen some states like I think New York or Connecticut wanted to ban body armor for anyone other than military and law enforcement. Mm-hmm. So like, how do you, how do you grow and continue forward under this, um, you know, anti-malarkey action Biden, <laughs> <laughs> you know, Bi- Bidenist yeah. hellscape where again, we have all these issues, but like, he's claiming that they're not there and we're still reopening the economy and reopening our society under COVID-19, but it's okay because the Democrats did it and yeah, go well, blue. Um, it's a terrible question, but I, I don't know what your thoughts are t- on, on today that. in Western Washington. There are more COVID cases right now than there were during the peak of the pandemic last year. Mm-hmm. So things are actually a shit ton worse in some very real measurable material ways. Yeah. Um, in terms of like, what does this mean for us? Um, the mess isn't going anywhere. I think the idea that a Biden presidency is going to roll back the clock on any of this is a fucking fantasy. Yeah. Um, Proud Boys are still assaulting people. Um, uh, Patriot Prayer has not been out as an organization in Western Washington in some time that I am aware of, but I know for a fact that their members Those people have still been. exist. Yeah. <laughs> Specifically, I happen to know there were members of Patriot Prayer on Capitol Hill in the last couple of weeks uh, mm-hmm. trying to pick fights. Uh, I know who you are. And, uh, <clears throat> and like, these problems haven't gone anywhere, and they're not going anywhere. And uh, gun control is not going to disarm the people trying to kill my friends. Right. Uh, and, blessedly, body armor has not come under attack everywhere yet. It's There's definitely not under attack federally. Um, uh there are several states where it's extremely difficult to get body armor as a civilian. Um, Connecticut is the main one. Is the main one. Uh, Connecticut has done everything in their power to ban body armor except ban it. Um, it is illegal to buy body armor through the mail. It is illegal to own body armor if you have any pending charges of any kind, if you have been convicted of any crime including misdemeanors um uh now this is this is de facto not de jure Mm -hmm. um uh, i do not believe that it is the letter of the law that if you have ever committed a misdemeanor offense you are not allowed to own body armor in connecticut but i know for a fact they do not issue waivers for any of their regulations to anyone they don't feel like issuing a waiver to uh and uh, that's that's something I think people need to spend a little time thinking about is the difference between de facto and de jure regulation in this country, because there are a lot of things that do not exist on paper that very much exist, in fact. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, as leftists, we shouldn't have a hard time wrapping our heads around that, talking about systemic racism uh, as often as we do. We should understand that de jure and de facto do not overlap. Right. Um, but yeah, and, and, uh, and I, I don't remember if it was New York state or New York city, but they're clamping down on body armor availability as well. And they're trying to use like, like states under the U S constitution have a lot of latitude in regulating commerce. So they, it's really hard for them to say what you can and cannot own. It's real easy for them to say what you can and cannot buy and sell. Right. Um, and uh, that's how they've banned body armor in Connecticut is they've said you can't buy it through the mail. Uh, that's it. That's all they had to do. 
I can't ship body armor to Connecticut. Um, actually, that's not entirely true. I can ship body armor to Connecticut. I will never get in trouble for doing that. Whoever bought the body armor from me and had it shipped to Connecticut is going to big boy jail for a very long time. And we don't want that to happen, so we cancel orders to Connecticut. You, we you don't are... ship armor to Connecticut. Yeah, well, I'm not ship, the, yeah. If you ever went to Connecticut and they knew who you were, then would they potentially put you under the... The way it's the worded, it's 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 all on the person who's buying, which is yeah. actually pretty messed up if you think about it, because like they might not even know, right? Like they're not yeah. in the industry, um, and they might just go online and be like, "Oh yeah, well this company will sell me body armor," and you know they've just committed a crime in the state yeah. of Connecticut. Well, remember, Next thing you know, you committed a felony with a paper trail. <laughs> yep. Uh, remember that ignorance of the law is not an excuse for breaking the law unless you are a cop. Yeah, you, you're. And then you, I yeah. forgot about that. Right, <laughs> yeah. right. it's a classic. Um, but yeah, that's the thing is that the way the law in Connecticut is written, like there is absolutely no penalty for selling body armor through the mail that would not come back on me at all. Um, uh, well, no one's ever been charged. If it came back on us, it would be we would be the first. Now, does the state, capital S state, give a flying fuck about its own rules? Absolutely not. Uh, but to date no supplier of body armor has ever been charged under Connecticut statutes regarding the sale of body armor through the mail. Yeah. However, quite a few people who thought they would be cheeky and have their armor shipped to their cousin who lives right across the border, uh, have, have in fact fucked around and found out. Um, yeah. and, uh, Connecticut state police, uh, are, well, you know, you hear about what, what's Connecticut state name. It's the something state. It's friendly. It sounds friendly and cute. Anyway, Connecticut, they'll fuck your shit up. <laughs> Connecticut, the we'll fuck your sh fuck your shit up state. Yeah, right. yeah. Um, they don't play, um, and uh, and that's actually how a lot of laws in this country are put together. Is like, look, the Constitution says we're not allowed to ban this, but we are going to make it as ridiculously hard to do as possible. Right, we're not going to ban this. We're just going to implement a two hundred dollar tax. Yeah, I was just going to say for, for, you know what? every the time you want NFA, to. You know, um, uh, the, the entire National Firearms Act, when it was initially passed, the $200 tax stamp, yeah. the purchasing power parity equivalent now is something like, a, like $80,000. Dear God. Oh my God. <laughs> like, like having, saying, oh, it's only a $200 tax stamp in, in it was like the price in, of a car back then. So in like, 1920, in 1920, yeah. that's like saying, Hey, yeah, you can have a Tommy gun. Sure. For the price of three houses. Right. But <laughs> the... Even though the 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 PPP the purchase power parity mm -hmm. is is you know what you just stated eighty thousand dollars yeah. of you know today's money would be the equivalent of two hundred back back then. Um, Don't quote me on that. Okay, no. but <laughs> you get the idea. Yeah, I'm just ballparking out of my ass right now. Yeah, <laughs> you get you get the ballpark yeah. idea. But but today, with the way that the minimum wage has not moved and the way that workers are still exploited, they're not getting their benefits or their paying out the ass for, for subpar benefits and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And, and also people just aren't making enough hours. So the $200 tax stamp, while it may not be the equivalent of $80,000 or a car's mm -hmm. worth of money is still a significant burden, especially for working class people or, or the unemployed yes, yeah. or, um, I would say in this particular, in this, in this narrow circumstance, it's not that big of a deal because the price of NFA 
firearms equipment is so enormous that the two hundred dollar tax stamp isn't even is less than the sales tax on a lot of yeah. these. Purchases. Like if you, if well, you can but, afford the thing, you can also afford the two hundred dollar tax. But it does price out budget options that you know you can buy a you know four hundred and fifty dollar suppressor, but then you're paying half its price in tax. Maybe we can wrap this up on a more positive note. So still focusing on the idea of how do you grow the operation and, and continue on, you know, forging this path within mm-hmm. the tactical industry. I really hate saying that because it's <laughs> filled with such just shitty yeah. people, companies, so on and so oh, forth. I cannot blame you. But like, um, you know, what, what are your hopes for this project and maybe for um, offshoots from this project and, and, how do you maybe for, uh, kind of foresee yourself using this experience to teach? I know you mentioned, Jay, that you liked the teaching aspect. How do you teach other leftists how to create similar operations or at least structure things so that if they're not manufacturing armor, maybe they are manufacturing high-end bags and purses or whatever, you know, that they can, they can yeah. undertake a model that is similar to yours and create a space that under the shitty capitalistic conditions we live in is at least somewhat tolerable to, to live and work under. Yeah. It's funny you say that. Cause I've had like two other, um, two other friends hit me up since I started doing this of like, Hey, can you help me like structure something similar? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, there is like a huge aspect of that, of like just being able to take the idea of like, how do you set up a co-op and like push that or like display that and have how to do that for other people and everything and teach that it's neat to be able to do. And I never thought about that going into this as like a goal. Um, okay, you did. <laughs> you want to? No, I want you to keep doing your thing. I got stuff to say at the end of this, but I, you you got stuff to say. Yeah. Um, the uh, in terms of like my goal for it, I would love to be able to quit um, any number of my day jobs or side jobs and just do this full time. I love doing this. Um, it's way more rewarding. Just even just being able to build something uh, with your hands, right? Much less something that you know is like going to comrades and um, is like a life-saving needed thing. Um, yeah, it's it's awesome. I love it. And I would love to just continue doing it and reach more people with, you know. What, uh, yeah, yeah. What would you say, Jay, is your um, ideal... Uh, like organizational size, uh, you know, structure, you name it. Like what, what is your, your goal to achieve with this? That's a good question. I mean, honestly, we've been so bogged down with things like, uh, you know, getting our shit seized by the government and everything that, that, that kind of has fallen by the wayside, that kind of like, wow, that would be cool if we had like 12 other people doing this right now Um, on top of, you know, what we already have. But like, yeah, that's hard to say. That's hard to say. I think keeping, I mean, certainly keeping, keeping the co-op thing, keeping everybody involved, keeping everybody involved in the manufacturing process. Because even though, you know, I'm like doing all the paperwork and the taxes and stuff, I still enjoy just like doing, you know, putting glue on, on tiles. Mm -hmm. Like, it's, it's neat. And it's actually neat to be able to see the, um, to be involved in it at that point, you know, that, that I'm putting labor into this and I'm not just like sitting at a desk doing things. Right. Sure. Like I'm a part of this. Um, 
that, you know, you don't get at like regular capitalist hellscape jobs. Um, <laughs> right. You know, you are assigned one task and you do that task and you don't get to see the final product. Right. Ah, yes. Alienation. So yeah, that's right. That's the word. For it. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. There, there's the term. So the goal then is to, to, however it ends up, however many people, you know, whether it's in another basement warehouse somewhere else, ten years down the line, or in, you know, some converted building and, you know, downtown major economic hub, where you've scaled up to hundreds of people all working under, you know, this profit share model where people are not necessarily yeah. treated in a shitty fashion and then they unionize against you and then you turn against them and give up your hey your that's principles. fair if, if, if it gets to that point where people want to unionize against <laughs> us where they're own co-own the company sure absolutely i don't know how you can unionize against yourself i don't know but, it'd be interesting and i you know what i look forward to negotiating profit sharing with you when we turn a fucking profit yeah <laughs> <laughs> We finally have $2 profit. Here yeah. you go. Here's oh, um, boy. Hey, now, we were technically in the black for a couple of weeks. <laughs> we were. And then that's gone. Yeah. <laughs> that That's just gone. But yeah, I think keeping that same, keeping that same feel to it, yeah. no matter how it's scaled, is an important part, and to that, me at least. Yeah, and that's that's really, like, in terms of the, the, the economic model, um, is that keeping the ownership and the control in the hands of people who are actually involved in the productive process. Um, I was thinking about this a lot when this was just an idea, not even a project in that, like something that's concerning to me is that you get into this slippery slope when you put yourself in a position where the right move for you to make for yourself and for the institution violates your fundamental values as a leftist. Mm -hmm. And that puts you in a weird spot. And it's not like, you know, you're choosing between making a ton of money and, you know, just coasting by. We're talking about survival decisions for the existence of the company next year, right? Will there still be a co-op next year? Who do you have to fuck to make that happen, mm -hmm. right? And, uh, and those are the sorts of positions that capitalism puts you in. That's why we have to continually reiterate that we are opposed to the system, not the capitalists, the people, though most of them are also dicks. Uh, it is the system that must be replaced because it does not matter who is at the helm of the ship. There's nothing good you can do with it. And that has been at the front of my mind at every meeting we've had about structural issues and decision making is that how do we put this together so that the incentive structure for decision making favors collectivist decisions. Mm -hmm. And the, I think the only way to do that is to make sure that the only people who ever have administrative control over the project are the people who are actually involved in the utilization of the project. And I don't think that that is enough by itself to make this never go wrong. I don't think that that's a magic bullet, but I do think that it's a necessary component of a successful mm -hmm. uh, uh, remediation. Mm -hmm. um, I know that if there are people involved in this project who are not directly involved in the manufacturing or the handling of materials or the designing or even the administrative labor, the actual administrative labor of running this project, they, they will have an incentive structure that favors developing systems of exploitation. Mm -hmm. Um, and as long as the only way you can be part of this project is if you're one of the people who would be exploited if it went that direction, 
that's the only vaccine I can think of against that sort of degeneration. I mean, you see in uh, uh, co-ops like big old industrial co-ops like Mondragon, they have fallen to exactly that sort of thinking where new hires don't get to buy into the ownership. They just get to work there for a lot less money. And now you get the, the old hands, the people who own a portion of the co-op are collecting dividends on the labor of these employees. They have become bosses. They have become exploiting capitalists. Mm -hmm. And they didn't, I, I mean, I don't want to ascribe malice to anyone. They're not twirling their mustaches and cackling. They just made a perfectly rational decision that was not informed by a leftist political value system. Mm -hmm. They made a good decision for themselves to make more money doing less. And I can't, I can't moralize that really. <clears throat> I mean, I could, but it's not useful to moralize it. Just to understand that the incentive structure existed for them to make that decision and be incentivized to make that decision. And it's, it's, it's been on the front of my mind every time we've talked about bringing other people into the project or expanding the project or what are we going to do with profits when we have them cross our fingers someday. Um, that's, that's been at the front of my mind during all of those conversations is how do we structure this so that we aren't tempted mm -hmm. or so that the right decision is always the right decision. Yeah. Right. And that's, that's where the capitalist system gets you is that it creates circumstances where the right decision TM is not the morally or ethically correct decision. It is not the long-term correct decision. It's just the decision you have to make right now in order to keep the business open tomorrow. And, uh, yeah, and there, there's no right way to do capitalism. Right. Yeah. No, that's, that is absolutely a huge issue trying to navigate that in this capitalist uh yeah. landscape trying to trying to own a business in a society where um you know your employment dictates whether or not you get to eat whether or not you, you get access to health care and and you know if you want unemployment you better have worked some amount of hours to pay into the you know the yeah. unemployment benefits or unemployment insurance and so when you when you create that co-op that maybe for five years or whatever period of time is able to do the right thing. And then suddenly it's like, we need to make that decision to figure out whether or not during this hard period mm. or during this challenge, we're going to be open tomorrow, next year, next decade, whatever. Let the car pass by. Cool. Anyways, um, you know, there's a point at which the, the mentality or the approach of, you know, how do we get by to tomorrow and what decision must we make regardless of its correctness you know, eventually I feel like there, there maybe is a little bit of a slippery slope towards this, but, but potentially it's, you, you end up in this, um, this kind of cyclical mentality where you are just perpetually making those decisions that are going to lead to the continued survival of the operation. And you're always justifying the wrong thing that you know is wrong from a political and philosophical perspective. Mm. And so, yeah, navigating that is tricky because I don't think there are very many good templates um for what that looks like and you know in, in the collectivist approach yeah people can plenty of bad examples the, yeah around, plenty of bad examples so like collectively you know the five of you could decide to run it great for however long and then collectively you could all decide that you know maybe you're on the cusp of being able to change your 
class position and material conditions. Mm-hmm. And the five of you switch from being a co-op to now being, I think you mentioned earlier, bosses. Become your own bosses and start hiring people to manufacture. And then you start turning the profits and you view it as well. You know, we put in the hard work and the effort initially. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly, again, when you're when you're tempted with the ability to switch your class position, earn beyond the survival uh, threshold, then suddenly, you know, there are people that are tempted to do that. And there are, you know, examples throughout history of, of even the state level when they attempt to undertake a project of liberation and of, you know, establishing the working class rule, you know, here and there, they're like, well, we need to do this in order to survive. And we need to take on this Mm -hmm. capitalistic characteristic in order to continue on. And then it's like, well, suddenly we have the you know, the billionaire class starts popping up or, yep. you know, and yeah, they're, yeah. And it's, it's like, it's almost like the NIJ testing, like we were talking about earlier. If it fails, it fails. You have to be like, all right ahead of time with like, if we can't make this work in a way that doesn't compromise our morals, then we can't do it. You can't, you have to decide that ahead of time. And that's, yeah, one of the reasons why as much as I'd like for this to be my full-time job, mm-hmm. I can't put myself in that position. Um, if my personal survival and my family's survival is dependent on me fucking people over, I cannot promise that I have the moral wherewithal to watch the people I love suffer so I don't have to fuck you over. Yeah. Uh, so I'm just not going to put myself in that position. Uh, and that's that's what I was getting at earlier is yeah. I'm trying to think of how do we structure things so that no one gets put in that position in the first place. Right. It's not even possible for someone to yeah. rely on this as their sole means of. And and I'm know. not, I'm not opposed to that conceptually or, or, or just, just, you know, off the bat, you know, I don't, I'm, I don't have a knee jerk rejection of that as an idea. Like, but we should always make sure that nobody who's working here can be exploited by anyone else who's working here. Yeah. And that's, that's what it comes down to is you can't be part of this project without being part of this project, having your hands on the tools, putting real labor hours into it so that if we're going to get into that circumstance where somebody's getting exploited, it's all of us. <laughs> And, uh, and I think that that is the only way to structure the incentive structure in a way that does not allow for that because then everybody's like, Hey, actually, I don't want you to get paid to stay home and do nothing because I don't want to pay for you to stay home and do nothing. You dick. Um, like people have to be in a position to actually say that, which Mm -hmm. means everybody who has their hands on the tools gets a vote and no one who doesn't have their hands on the tools gets a vote. And that's, I mean, I don't think that's a perfect system because I don't think we're representing everyone who has a stake in this. And, and I don't think that it's giving appropriately weighted power, but like, how do you decide whose vote should count more? And that's just a fucking bag of worms. I don't even want to Yeah. <laughs> no, but so I don't think that this is a perfectly optimized system. I'm just like, this is the best idea we could come up with and hopefully it works. And if it doesn't, we'll try to write good notes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then make sure you release those to the public so that they exactly. can. Exactly. And that's, and that's the thing is that like, if you know, and if, if it gets to the point where we can't make this work without exploiting somebody's labor, then we can't make this work. 
Yeah. I think I might have a formula for uh, making it work. And that is to continuously go on uh, leftist podcasts and uh, what's the term? Self-crit. Self-crit on podcasts for the world well, to hear. My self-crit right now is I ramble way too much about <laughs> off-topic shit. And I'll take I'll take responsibility for that. I don't know that I can change, but I will acknowledge it, and I'm open to being corrected. All right. Um, anything <laughs> so great as I spent too long on Facebook groups and should have been doing this earlier. Oh, I still do that. <laughs> I, I, I still do that. All right. Um, before we wrap up, is there anything you you both want to talk about on the topic of Red Star Defense? And you know, any any ideas? Uh, uh, I don't know. You have the floor. I, I know I promised everyone we would have multi-curve plates soon, and I am very sorry. I realize it sounds like I'm making excuses, but I really can blame the government for this. Um, we we are still... It's still on the to-do list. We had a very successful test a few weeks ago. The design is essentially finalized. Our supplier had to change their tile supplier because of shutdowns in their country so we have to start over with the new tiles test it all again test it all again from the ground up but when we get a little money together so we can actually buy materials it's it we are on the cusp all the r&d is done we just have to do peace of mind testing basically like we're not even peace of mind isn't the right word. Like responsibility testing. Mm-hmm. After what we talked about earlier, I think that's a better way to frame it. But I've been thinking about it as peace of mind testing. Um, the design is ready. We're very happy with it. It worked very well. It's ergonomically very comfortable. It's so close, so close. Awesome. Where can uh, people find you on the internet? Uh, to you know your shop your your yeah. social media accounts where you put out your educational informational content find us on facebook red star defense you can find us at redstardefense.com and instagram at red star defense um i think it's red star defense llc on facebook and i'm responsible okay. for the facebook and it is very rarely updated but we respond to messages same day same hour usually uh you can reach out to me directly by messaging that page and i We'll have no idea who you are, so please be nice. So what you're saying is when you respond same day, same hour, instead of working on those plates that you promised everyone, you are... Goofing off on the internet. Go- goofing off on absolutely. the internet. And, uh, yeah. yeah instead absolutely. of working my W2 job, <laughs> answering Instagram messages. All right, yeah, I well, mean, like, as it stands right now, we don't have any materials to work with, so... All right, Max, Jay, thank you very much for your time this thank evening you. and uh, for inviting me into your... Uh, your workshop and uh, I feel like I learned a lot and hopefully everyone listening can get some insight into the uh, the chaos that is Red Star Defense (laughs) (laughs) welcome to our shit mess yeah thanks so much for having us thank you if you like the work we're doing at Hammer and Pistol and would like to help grow the project please consider supporting us by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash hammer and pistol For as little as $1 a month, you can help provide the funding to cover the costs of hosting this podcast, and I am also working on putting together some perks for all of my patrons. You can like the project on Facebook and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Hammer and Pistol. If you have any ideas for the show, feel free to drop a message wherever you can find us on social media, and I will get back to you as soon as I can.
The goal of this project is to explore the philosophy of violence and defense and to demystify the gun and other tools of defense, both from a working class perspective and a decolonial perspective. I admit that I am still undergoing my own journey of political and philosophical development as I learn theory, especially in relation to guns. And I thank you for your time as you undertake this journey with me. Until next time. Gringo, go home! Los obreros de América Latina te dicen Gringo, go home! Yankee, go home! Levanten tus manos la bandera de la revolución América Latina obrera y grita con fuerza Yankee, go home!